Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 4. Jalil Jackson was scheduled to work at Max Meat and Foods that afternoon. The store was located in a brick building, next door to a laundromat, on the corner of Davis and Taylor. When he was younger, Jalil and his friends used to love stopping by Max on the way home from school to buy ice cream and candy. Now, the sight of the store's big red and white sign made him want to punch someone. You're late again, Old Mac barked the minute Jalil walked inside. Old Mac stood behind the gleaming meat counter, wearing a crisp white apron. He was a short, bald, white man in his 60s with faded tattoos on his wiry forearms. He raised his watch and tapped it. What time are you supposed to be here for work? Four, I guess, Jalil said. Four? It's 4.20, little Jackson. I got held up by some things, Jalil said. This guy was a trip. What difference did it make if he was 20 minutes late? There was nothing going on there that demanded Jalil's attention. He was only a stock boy. He didn't own the stupid store. Old Mac grunted. Mop the aisles. There's some boxes in the back that need to be broken down and disposed of, too. And pick up the lot. You forgot to do that yesterday, little Jackson. Fine. And my name's Jalil. Jalil stormed away into the back room. Jalil was 16. And this was the third job he had held in the past four months. First, he had worked for the town's grounds crew, cutting grass and weeds and cleaning up litter. And he hated that job and quit. Then his father got him a job at Shirley's Diner as a busboy. And that lasted only a week because there was no way he was going to clean up after folks. His dad had lined up his latest gig, too, here at Max Meat and Foods. And he had been there about a month. He hated it there. Old Mac was a mean bastard who ran the place as though he was a sergeant and the employees were his soldiers. A Vietnam War veteran, Old Mac seemed to have forgotten that the war had ended a long time ago. The only reason Jalil had kept the job so far was because he was sick of dad hounding him. To be honest, he didn't understand why he had to work at all. The fellas he hung out with didn't work and their folks didn't harass him about it. Dad was always writing him about being responsible and earning his own money. Jalil understood all that responsibility shit, 
but he didn't think it was something for him to be concerned about right now. He was only in high school. Why couldn't he enjoy being a teenager? When Jalil raised that argument, Dad would cite his low grades, the same reason he gave for not allowing Jalil to drive, too. Dad was full of explanations and excuses. It was impossible to win an argument with him. He wished his mother was still alive. Things would be different if she were here. She never would have forced him to work. He had to stop thinking about how much he missed her. His chest had gotten tight, a sure sign that tears would follow soon. He was outside picking up the lot, collecting trash in other words, when the fellas came through. T-Bone was driving his mama's old blue Oldsmobile 98, and Poke was riding shotgun. A hip-hop joint rumbled from the car stereo. The latest song by the gangster crew from Jackson, Jacktown. T-Bone had been playing the album so much lately that Jalil was convinced he would soon wear down the tracks on the CD. The plate glass windows of the store, plastered with handwritten signs advertising sales on ribs and chicken, vibrated in unison with the heavy bass booming from the speakers. Jalil set his broom and dustpan against the storage brick wall and went to see his boys. T-Bone lowered the music's volume a few notches. Jalil had grown up with T-Bone and Poke. They were the same age and in the same grade, but they looked as though they lived in different worlds. Both T-Bone and Poke sported a gold tooth and earrings, and they had tattoos on their arms and chests. Fake platinum hung around their necks. T-Bone's hair was braided in cornrows, and Poke had a puffy, wild afro. Jalil's father would not allow him to get a gold tooth, wear an earring, get a tattoo, rock more than one gold chain, or sport a hairstyle other than a low-cut fade. Dad was too damn strict. When Jalil argued with him about it, Dad would say, Why you want to look like those hoodlums, boy? They ain't even going to graduate from high school. Although Jalil didn't like Dad's hoodlums comment, he had to admit that he was right about his boys dropping out. Both T-Bone and Poke promised that they weren't going back to school this fall. Hey, T-Bone said. Jalil smelled beer on his breath. A bottle of cords wrapped in a paper bag was wedged between T-Bone's thighs. What's up with you? Working this tired-ass job, Jalil said. That fool old Mac's getting on my nerves. We about to play ball, Poke said. You coming? Jalil chewed his lip. He really wanted to play ball and hang with the crew. But if he ditched his job, old Mac would tell Dad, and Dad would never shut up about it. It would be one more thing he'd hold over Jalil's head to explain why he wouldn't allow him to do something, like drive a car. Let old Mac pick up his own trash, man, T-Bone said. We've been picking up white folks' trash for centuries. Jalil didn't bother to mention that nearly everyone who lived in Mason's Corner was black, and chances were any trash litter in the parking lot had been dropped there by black people. But T-Bone was forever talking some quasi-militant shit. We cruised by the court, man, Poke said. Andre's there. For real? Jalil said. Andre, though he didn't actually deal dope, always had weed on him. And he was cool with sharing with them, probably because he lived with T-Bone's sister. Yep, T-Bone said. So what's up? You gonna hang or you gonna slave for the white man? Jalil looked towards the store. Old Max stood beside the front entrance, arms folded across his chest, glowering at Jalil. The decision was easier than Jalil had imagined. I ain't working for you no more, Jalil thought. 
Tell my dad, I don't care. I hate you and your stupid store. Let's roll, Jalil said. T-Bone laughed. That's my nigga. Jalil didn't bother to look back as they rolled away. Chief Jackson got a call he loathed almost as much as the notification of a crime. Old Mac, calling to say his son had ditched work. I gotta let go of your boy, Chief, Old Mac said. Jackson heard genuine regret in his voice. I've given him a chance, but he doesn't want to work. His attitude stinks, and I can't depend on him. Jackson paced the floor of the small office at headquarters, the phone pressing into his ear. Across the room, Deputy Ray Dedu glanced up from the tablet he was reading. Jackson settled into a swivel chair, turned to face the calendar on the wall. He didn't like to let folks see him upset. Okay, buddy, Jackson said. I get you. Thanks for giving my boy a shot. Apologize for the trouble he's caused you. I don't want to tell you how to raise your son, Chief, but he's headed down a dangerous path. Those hoodlums he hangs out with? Mac, I gotta go. Jackson did not want to let old Mac get started about the hoodlums that were Jalil's friend, because then old Mac would start complaining about the people loitering in the parking lot of his store. And then he'd begin to rant about crime in general in Mason's Corner. He would go on and on. I'll stop by and chat with you later, here. Jackson hung up. He checked himself from throwing the phone across the room. His son, he did not understand him. He just didn't. Jalil having problems at work, Deputy Dedu said. Something like that, Jackson said, turning around. He didn't like to discuss family business with outsiders, especially with someone like his deputy. Deputy Dedu was a good guy and a top-notch cop, but he was an odd one. Deputy Dedu unfolded himself from the seat behind the desk, and it was like watching a praying mantis maneuver out of a crevice. Light-skinned, Dedu was tall and lanky, with a small head that seemed out of proportion to the rest of his body. He was fastidiously neat, clean-shaven, with big white teeth. His uniform was spotless and pressed, the creases of his slacks almost as sharp as blades. His shoes were so shiny that Jackson half-believed the deputy wore a new pair each day of the week. Dedu leaned on the edge of his desk. In his gigantic bony hand, he held the issue of one of those wacky tabloids. Dedu read the tabloids zealously, the same way Jackson's deceased wife used to devour paperback romance novels. You know what the problem could be? Dedu said. He tapped the cover of the publication. Extraterrestrials from Venus. It says in here the Venetians, aliens from Venus, are beaming signals to Earth to scramble brainwaves, and that our youth are especially vulnerable. It could explain your boy's erratic behavior, Chief. Jackson only stared at him. Dedu was serious. That was the worst part. He believed all that alien crap. Heck, Dedu believed everything he read. The more bizarre, the better. Dedu's fascination with all things weird ranged from tabloids to the lurid horror novels that he kept stacked on his desk. At times like this, Jackson was astounded that he had hired this man as his deputy. Perhaps his brainwaves had been scrambled when he'd given Dedu the job three years ago. Jackson stood and hitched his belt. I gotta make a run. Hold it down, here. Let me know if you want more details about how the aliens... Later, deputy. Jackson pushed Dedu's madness out of his thoughts and focused on his son. He needed to find him, 
and he had a good idea where Jalil had gone. There weren't many places in town where youths could hang out. He drove down Main Street, made a right on Pine Lane, and pulled his crew drove to the basketball court. A group of young men, most of them bare-chested, played ball. Onlookers leaned against the fence. Jalil was on the court playing. He spotted Jackson's car, and Jackson could see his son mouthing the words, Oh shit, my dad is here. Jackson didn't climb out of the cruiser. He wanted to avoid causing a scene and embarrassing the kid in front of his buddies. Doing something like that would only make Jalil resent him more than he already did. Though I don't understand why the boy resents me at all, he thought. He tapped the horn. Jalil sauntered to the car, looking cool, putting on a show for his friends, as if to say, no problem. Everything is alright, fellas. I can handle my dad. Finally, he got in and slammed the door. Silent, Jackson pulled away. As he drove, Jackson watched his boy from the corner of his eye. Jalil looked so damn much like Paulette, his mother, that Jackson's heart kicked. Jalil had his mother's chin, eyes, nose, and lips. Jalil had inherited Jackson's sturdy build and low, even voice. Sometimes, when Jalil talked, Jackson thought he was listening to a recording of himself from 20 or so years ago. Jackson took them to a quiet area on the outskirts of town. He parked on a bluff that overlooked the Coldwater River. Years ago, Jackson would bring Jalil here to fish. Those were happier times. Got a call from old Mac today, Jackson said. Said you up and left with your buddies when you're supposed to be working. I'm not working at that stupid store anymore, Jalil said. Old Mac's racist. He treats me like I'm a slave. Old Mac ain't racist and you know it. I've known him 20 some years. He's a good man. He did me a favor giving you a job at his store. Jalil shrugged. That so what shrug was a boy's response to so many of Jackson's points. It infuriated him. Why couldn't they have an ordinary two-way conversation? I can't keep getting you jobs, son, Jackson said. I'm using up all my goodwill with the business folks in town. I don't want to work anyway. If you're living with me, you got to have a job. You got to learn to be responsible, earn your own paycheck. That's the way the world is. Another so what shrug. Jackson flexed his thick fingers on the steering wheel. He wanted to seize Jalil by the shoulders and shake him, to rattle some common sense into his head. Did the boy think that life was only hanging out with his lazy buddies, playing ball and chasing girls? Jackson didn't know what Jalil was thinking. That was the most frustrating and frightening thing about his relationship with his son. He had no idea what his son was thinking, and the unknown terrified him. What do you want from me? Jackson said. He was surprised to hear himself speak the words. For the first time since Jalil had climbed into the car, he turned and looked at his father. Huh? Jalil said. Jackson cleared his throat. <clears throat> you heard me right. What do you want from me? I can't figure it out at all, so now I'm asking you direct. Jalil shrugged. But then he said, stop riding me about having a job. I want to enjoy being a teenager. I got my whole life to work. That's what Mama would say. She wouldn't want me to work. Jackson's breath snagged in his chest. If he drew in another breath, he felt as if his lungs might just burst like balloons. 
He could not believe that Jalil had reached into their shared tragedy, Paulette's death, and thrown it into his face like this, to justify his unwillingness to hold a simple job. It was like a desecration of Paulette's memory. The boy could not possibly know what he was saying. But I asked him what he wanted, and he told me. Jackson slammed the car in the gear and screamed back into town. He didn't slow until they reached their house. They rocked to a halt in front of their ranch home. Go in and stay put, Jackson said. We'll talk about this later. Whatever, man. Jalil got out and strutted away. Jackson watched his son go inside. He may as well have been watching a stranger, someone else's child. This mule-headed, lazy kid could not possibly be his own son. But Jackson could not shake the feeling that somehow, he was to blame for what had happened to his kid. The problem was that he couldn't figure out what he had done wrong and how he could work out of this mess. Some chief he was. He was supposed to keep the town in order, and he couldn't keep his own family in line. Shaking his head, he went back to work. Shortly after Chief Jackson left the basketball court with Jalil, a silver Lexus SUV cruised to the curb. Junior, who was driving to the hoop when he spotted the vehicle, stumbled and lost the ball. Look at that, Junior said. The other players and the guys hanging out around the court turned. Most of them only shrugged, but not Junior. From his lawn cutting jobs, he knew what kind of car just about everyone in town owned. This one didn't belong to anyone he had seen before. He drifted off the court to look at the Lexus more closely. Someone shouted at him to come back to the game, but Junior ignored him. The silver truck had mesmerized him. Andre, his cousin, leaned against a chain-link fence, smoking a cigarette. He was a big guy, around Junior's size. He had a black do-rag wrapped around his head, the end of it trailing down his neck like a ponytail. Andre nodded at Junior. That ride goes for about 60 grand, Andre said, coming to stand beside Junior. You'd have to cut grass for 20 years to save up enough to get that one, cuz. You ain't lying, Junior said. The Lexus truck hummed, idling. The windows were tinted with a weird sort of reflective glass, so Junior couldn't tell who was sitting inside. The passenger side window slid downward. A bald-headed black man wearing shades in a gray suit sat behind the steering wheel. He was real sharp and rich looking. The kind of man Vicky Queen liked, Junior thought. Classical music piped out of the vehicle. Junior had never known anyone to listen to music like that for fun. This guy was kind of different. Good afternoon, gentlemen, the man said. He had a booming voice and the strangest accent Junior had ever heard. May I speak with you for a moment? Junior pointed at himself and Andre. Us? Approach the vehicle, please. Junior looked at Andre. Andre shrugged, took another pull of his cigarette. Both of them stepped closer to the Lexus. The guy turned down his music. What you want, man? Andre said. The man smiled. He had teeth like someone in a Colgate commercial. They were a perfect, shiny white. The contrast of his teeth and dark skin was striking. Would you be interested in a job, the man said. It'll be for one night only. It'll be hard work, manual labor, and that is why I'm seeking the services of two strong young men such as yourselves.
At the mention of a job, Junior leaned closer. What kind of work you want us to do, mister? Digging, the man said. As I stated, difficult manual labor. Digging for what? Andre said. You'll be compensated well for your efforts, the man said. As though by magic, a gold money clip that held a thick wad of bills appeared in his fingers. Each of you will be paid $250. $250, Junior said. It will take him a week to earn that much money. Just for doing some digging? That's correct, gentlemen. I will require your services this evening at 9 o'clock. Are you familiar with the residents named Jubilee? Oh, uh, yeah, Junior said. Up on the hill. Shit, that crib is haunted, Andre said. But he kept his eyes on the dollars that the man casually held. And you ain't answered my question. What we gonna be digging for? The man sighed. The money vanished. He looked away from them. Junior's heart clutched. He could feel $250 about to slip out of his grasp. He pushed Andre aside and stuck his head inside the truck. Mister, we'll do the work. Don't mind my cousin. The man flashed his dazzling smile. It's good that you're so industrious, young man. Please arrive at the gates of Jubilee promptly at 9 o'clock tonight. Make certain that you're wearing boots and work clothing. I will supply everything else that you'll require. Yes, sir, Junior bobbed his head. We'll be there. Until this evening, gentlemen. The pasture side window came up. He cruised away, the Lexus purring like a panther. Andre watched the truck leave, frowning. Junior, I don't know, man. Folks be saying that place is haunted. And that nigga still didn't say what we was going to be digging for. Junior scratched his head. It was kind of funny, wasn't it? He had heard stories about the Mason place being haunted, but he had never set foot inside the house himself. And Andre was right. The man hadn't said what they'd be digging for. But $250 was a lot of money. Andre didn't have a job, but he had two kids and was living with a woman, so he needed the money as much as Junior did. That is a lot of cash, though. Andre threw a cigarette on the ground and stubbed it out with his foot. Alright, cuz, I'll pick you up at a quarter to nine. Then we'll go check out this gig. I'll be ready, Junior smiled. Already, he was thinking about how, with 250 in his hands, he'll be much closer to buying his pickup truck. Kyle awoke at sunset. Contrary to popular perception, vampires did not sleep in coffins. They preferred beds with mattresses. The more comfortable, the better. What sane creature slumbered in a wooden box intended for the dead? Myths amused him sometimes. He was in the master bedroom suite of Jubilee. The shutters, a custom design that guaranteed protection against daylight, were tightly closed, allowing deep shadows to dwell inside. But his vision was perfectly attuned to the darkness. There wasn't much in there worth seeing. Like the rest of the residents, this room ached for a renovation. Mamu had done a commendable job of cleaning the house to make it somewhat livable, but this was, by far, the most wretched room in which Kyle had ever slept. Numerous wooden planks were missing from the decaying hardwood floor. The walls, riddled with peeling paint, appeared leprous. The ceiling fan had lost at least two blades, giving it the look of a junk propeller. Cracks veined the windows. Although Kyle had the means to renovate the property, 
he would not waste money on the effort. They planned to live in this town for only a few weeks. He had instructed Mamu to purchase new beds, linens, special blinds, and necessary appliances and furniture, but to leave most of the mansion in its present dilapidated condition. For Kyle, it was a welcome change from the opulence in which he had lived all his life. He rose from the king-sized bed. He wore black silk nightclothes. He slid on a matching pair of house slippers away to beside the bed. There was a knock at the door. Come in, Kyle said. Mamou stepped inside. The sun is set, monsieur. I've noticed. Vampires have a biological clock to synchronize their bodies to the rising and setting of the sun. Mamou was aware of this, yet believed he had to notify Kyle each day. Kyle did not mind. Mamou was a man of rigid habit. How did you sleep? Mamou said. Wonderfully. The bed was comfortable. Thank you. Mamou smiled, but Kyle sensed that his friend's question had another meaning. I sensed a haunting spirit, though I did not see it, Kyle said. He smiled. It was afraid of me. Ah, Mamou said. It knew that you were not a man. You are safe as long as I'm here, my friend, Kyle said. He clasped his hands and strolled across the room. I'm hungry. Come with me and tell me of your progress. As they left the room and descended the spiral staircase, Mamou filled him in on what he had accomplished that day. Everything was prepared for the work they were to begin in a few hours. Flickering white candles illuminated the hallway and rooms. Kyle despised electric light. In the kitchen, Kyle retrieved a packet of blood from the refrigerator. Mamou had procured two new refrigerators. He stored his own human food in another one. Sipping blood, Kyle opened the door to the basement and navigated the stone steps, Mamou following behind him. Candles burned in the cellar, too. Ah, Kyle said, pleased. A large bed occupied the middle of the area. It appeared to have come from a hospital, as it had railings along the side to prevent one from rolling off the mattress. An IV rack stood beside the bed, though no bag of fluids hung from the hook. Yet. A big pine entertainment center stood several feet in front of the bed. It contained a 25-inch television, a combination DVD-VCR player, a stereo system, and a collection of films and audio recordings. The media library was composed mostly of documentaries on historical topics, though a handful of popular films and programs were included. Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi. Interview with the Vampire, featuring Tom Cruise. And The Best of Dark Shadows, the TV show with the fascinating vampire, Barnabas Collins. Is this what you will wish for, sir? Mamou said. This is perfect. You've outdone yourself. Kyle approached the bed. He smoothed the crisp linens, fluffed the thick pillows. He was as giddy as a child, his nerves crackling with energy. Laughing, he suddenly leapt across the cellar to a short staircase that led to a set of wide, wooden doors. Where did these lead? Kyle said. Outside, Mamou said. They're storm doors. I placed a new padlock upon them. You are too much, my friend. Kyle noted that there were no windows in the chamber. Splendid. Kyle had learned patience in his long life, but for once, he could not wait. He could not wait until later tonight when he would finally meet his father.
David cannot remember ever having such an enjoyable first date. He picked up Naya at 7, and they had driven to South Haven, 20 miles north of Mason's Corner. They had dinner at a Southwestern-style restaurant, then visited the multiplex cinema to see a movie. After the film, a typical summer action flick full of explosions and one-liners, they stopped by a cafe for dessert. We had peach cobbler at lunch, and now we're eating cheesecake, Naya said. She giggled, dangling her fork. Are you trying to put some weight on me or what? You are a little skinny. She threw a napkin at him. Hey, you said I was in great shape. I was only trying to make a good first impression. He laughed, then grew serious. I wouldn't change one thing about you. She gave him the full effect of her lovely eyes. It had been that kind of evening, filled with meaningful gazes and flirtatious yet profound compliments. Only once in his life had David been similarly at ease with a woman, and that had been two years ago, with his ex-girlfriend, whom he thought he would marry. When they broke up, he'd been shattered. She had been his first genuine, mature love. He doubted he'd ever meet a woman like her again. Lightning never struck twice. But now, he had met Naya. He was a practical guy. He wrote goals in a journal and executed them. He never attempted anything of importance without thinking it through from beginning to end. He liked an orderly, even predictable life, in which he could maintain control at all times. When he had come to Mason's Corner, the possibility of meeting a woman had never crossed his thoughts. But now, Naya. Although he had known her for only a day, he could not deny the sense of rightness that he felt in her company. Was it love at first sight? He hesitated to slap a cliché label like that on it, but it was something special, something worth growing and exploring. Naya was watching him. He had the feeling that she knew exactly what he was thinking, and instead of making him nervous, he felt warm, accepted. I want to tell you why I left Houston and came back home, Naya said. He put down his fork. Okay, if you feel comfortable sharing that with me. I do, she said firmly, as though reaffirming it to herself. In Houston, I was stocked. He listened. She was shared a story at her own pace. This happened after my knee injury forced me to stop running track, she said. I was teaching at a high school. One of my colleagues, Morgan, a math teacher, asked me out on a date. He was a good-looking guy in his 30s, never married, and he seemed really nice, intelligent, and thoughtful. Saul went out with him. Talk about the day from hell. The minute he picked me up, he started talking about all of our colleagues. He had strong negative views of everyone. So-and-so is a homosexual, he'd say, and we should keep them away from the boys in this class. Miss this or that is a bitch and always has been, and I can't wait until she leaves. He went on and on like that throughout dinner. He was a totally different person in private than he was in school. Our plan was to catch a movie after dinner, but I already had a headache from listening to his nasty attitude. I told him I had to get in early to grade some papers and asked him to drop me off. He drove me back to my place and he made a couple of comments about how I was rude for ending our date early. I let it pass. I only wanted to get away from him. 
but I could have given him a piece of my mind because if anyone had been rude, it was him. The harassment started the following week. He asked me when we could get together again, and I said I was busy. Then when is your schedule open, he said. I told him I didn't know, hoping he'd get the hint. He didn't. He started to leave vulgar notes in my mailbox. Stuff like, Baby, can I have a private tutoring session with you? And, You're too damn sexy to be teaching here. You're going to make me lose my mind. He never signed these notes, but I knew it was him. No one else had any reason to write them. The messages got cruder and more frequent. I complained to the principal, and she said she was going to talk to Morgan. She took my complaint seriously, which was something I had worried about. I thought my complaint might be laughed off. But apparently, this wasn't the first time this guy had done something like this. He had been forced to leave his last teaching position because of the same kind of thing. But the principal must not have been all that frightening to Morgan, because he stepped up his harassment. He called my place at all hours of the night, never saying anything, just breathing hard on the phone. He'd leave a rose under the windshield wiper of my car, and he started showing up at the gym where I worked out. He'd find a spot where he could watch me run around the track, and he would stare at me the entire time. I finally confronted him and told him I wanted him to leave me alone or I was going to call the police. He laughed it off and acted like I was the one tripping. I only want to spend time with you. Get to know you better, he said. I'm a good man and I want to prove it to you. He wasn't worried about my threat to go to the cops. Maybe he didn't believe me. Maybe he didn't care. I don't know what he was thinking, really. This harassment went on for weeks. Then one night, I came home and found that someone had been in my apartment. Clothes were all over the place, but my lingerie was missing. I knew who'd done it, though I had no idea how he got into my place. He had a sick, cunning mind. I was scared to death then. I called the police. They talked to him and warned him to stay away from me. And they gave me advice on how to handle the situation. I hoped they had thrown a scare into him. They hadn't. He only got worse. He called more frequently. He followed me to and from work and told me when I ran errands. There was no escape from him. He promised me that I would be his, no matter how long it took. I was a nervous wreck. I was afraid to leave the house pick up the phone, to do anything. Morgan was everywhere, like he had cloned himself a dozen times. I called the police again, and I got a restraining order. Instead of cooling him off, it drove him over the edge. When I was alone in the teacher's lounge one afternoon, he assaulted me. I've always been a fitness nut, trying out new sports. And when I was in college, I started learning Taekwondo, and had gotten as far as a red belt at the time. The training came in handy, and it probably helped too that Morgan isn't that much bigger than I am. He's about 5'9 and on the lean side, and I'm 5'7. Anyway, we tangled in there when he tried to manhandle me, and I got the better of him, split his lip and bloodied his nose pretty good. It might have gone further than that if a couple other teachers hadn't walked into the room. Morgan ran out, and I called the cops again. Now you'd think that after I kicked his butt, he'd leave me alone, right? Nope. First of all, the cops didn't find him at home. They couldn't find him anywhere. 
That night, I stayed at her friend's house because I was so afraid to go to my place alone. She lived with her boyfriend, so there were three of us, and she had a Rottweiler too. I thought I would be safe if only for that night. Late, around one in the morning, Morgan broke into the house. He had a gun this time. He shot my friend's dog, and then he pistoled with my friend's fiance. I heard all of this happening while I was in the guest bedroom, and let me tell you, never in my life have I been so scared. I pushed the dresser against the door and hid in the closet. Morgan tried to break down the door, and he kept chanting, Going to see my baby, Naya. She belongs to me. Naya's all mine, all mine, all mine. He had gone crazy. I was convinced that he would break in and blow me away. I was praying just as much as he was chanting. The police got there before Morgan could get to me. He gave himself up peacefully. He was sentenced to two years in prison for assault and other charges. Only two years, David said. The guy was going to kill you. She smiled bitterly. He could get paroled sooner for good behavior. That's crazy, he said. Damn, I'm so sorry you had to go through something like that. I had to leave Houston, she said. I used to love the city, but it held too many painful memories for me. Even though Morgan was in prison, I imagined I saw his face everywhere I went. I had nightmares, and still do sometimes, about him escaping and coming to finish me off. Mama asked me to come back home. It didn't take much convincing on her part. I was ready to live in a place where I felt safe. And this Morgan guy's still in jail, right? He's been locked up a little over a year. But like I said, he could get out early. I'm praying that whenever he's released, he won't come after me. I hope he forgets about me. Do you think he could find you here? Her eyes were haunted. Definitely. He's slick. Smart. He could track me down. Some women who've been stalked have actually needed to change their names and move far away. To where no one knows them. Like they're in the witness protection program. But I never want to do that. I can't leave behind everything I know and love. He reached across the table and took her hand in his. Her skin was cool, her palms moist, and he realized how much reliving her terror had shaken her. I picked up Taekwondo again after I moved back home, she said. I take classes at a dojo in Memphis. I've got a black belt now. I bought a gun too, and I know how to use it. If Morgan comes again, I'll be ready for him. You got another weapon, too, he said. What's that? Me. I'm not letting anything happen to you. You've got a bodyguard, girl. She smiled, squeezed his hands. You're so sweet. How did I ever meet such a nice guy at the park in little boring Mason's Corner? The words came out of him before he could think about the meaning of what he was saying. Maybe it was destiny. Andre pulled up in his car at 10 minutes past 9 o'clock. Junior had been sitting on the rickety front steps of the trailer. He had been fidgeting, restlessly counting the stars in the clear night sky. He never liked to show up late for a job. Andre was supposed to pick him up at a quarter to nine, and as the minutes ticked away, Junior grew more agitated. The bald-headed rich man in the Lexus was offering them good money for a few hours' work, and they were going to blow it by showing up late. 
What if the guy hires someone else? They miss out on all that money. At times like this, Junior felt an aching need for his own pickup truck. With his own ride, he'd never arrive late for work. Anywhere. When Andre arrived in his battered white Chevy, Junior raced to the car. Man, we're late, Junior hustled inside. We're supposed to be up there at 9. It's 10 minutes after. Chill out, cuz, Andre said. A toothpick dangled from his lips. From the pungent smell inside the car, Junior could tell that Andre had been smoking, and not cigarettes either. Andre had that lazy look in his eyes that let Junior know his cousin was as high as a kite. You've been smoking, Junior said. We gotta be ready for work, Andre. Swiveling the steering wheel with one hand, Andre made a dismissive motion. You worry too much, cuz. It's cool. That man gonna be mad that we late, Junior said. Andre cruised slowly, and Junior gritted his teeth. With the passing of each minute, he could feel dollar bills slipping out of his fingers. What I want to know is, Andre said, what this cat's going to have us digging up. I told you they say the Mason crib is haunted. I don't know, Junior said. He had avoided thinking about the scary tales of the Mason place, preferring to focus on the money he was going to earn. I've been asking around about that cat, Andre said. I heard he was from France. That's why he got that funny accent. Oh, Junior said. He didn't know exactly where France was, only that it was far away and that he'd never go there. Not unless they had some good paying jobs he could do that was worth the trip. It just don't make any damn sense. A nigga from France living in that big ass haunted crib and now he want us to do some digging at night? I got a bad feeling about it, cuz. We gotta go, Andre. That's a lot of money. I know. You want to make some money. I need the money, too. That's the only reason I'm going with you. My girl's been on my case about working a job. They drove up the steep country road that led to the Mason house. Junior hadn't been up here in... Well, he couldn't remember the last time. No one lived up this way, so there was no reason for him to ever swing through this part of town. The mansion came into view. It sat far back from the road, up on a peak. Soft lights gleamed through the windows. A tall, wrought-iron gate restricted access to the long dirt lane that led to the house. Andre parked in front of the entrance. They got out of the car. Towering trees cloaked in darkness flanked the fence. A cool breeze whistled through the branches. Other than the wind, the night was silent, as though they stood on a hill at the top of the world. Andre approached the gate. Damn, this place is creepy as hell. Junior ignored Andre. He peered through the fence bars, looking for the black Frenchman. We too late. I bet he left us and got someone else. We ain't gonna make any money. Stop tripping. Andre banged the gate with his fist. It creaked open on rusty hinges. Come on. Junior followed Andre inside. Across the lawn, a moving shadow appeared. Gentlemen! It was the Frenchman. He shined a flashlight in their direction. Only the two of you have come? Yeah, Andre said. We didn't bring nobody else. We apologize for being late, mister, Junior said. That is acceptable, the man said. My name is Mama Walday. Mama what? Andre said. 
Simply call me Mamu, he said, as if annoyed. Mamu, Junior thought. Figured he'd have a crazy name like that. The fella had changed into a new suit, too, Junior noticed. This one was navy blue, just as sharp as the other one. The guy probably had a closet full of nice clothes. Mamu gave them a once-over. I earnestly hope that you're prepared to work, gentlemen, and to work hard. We have a great deal of labor ahead of us tonight. Digging for what? Andre said. Mamu only smiled. We're behind schedule. Follow me, please. Andre mumbled something under his breath, but he followed. Junior followed his cousin. They walked towards the mansion, but as they got closer, Mamu cut a path along the side. Junior realized they weren't going inside the house. They were going somewhere else on the property. But the house held his attention as they walked past it. He looked at the soft light that flickered in the windows, but blinds prevented him from seeing through the glass and figuring out what was going on inside. He thought he saw a dark face peering at him through a dimly lit window on the second floor. But when he blinked, the face was gone, if it was ever there to begin with. A chill rattled down his spine. He wasn't going to pay any more attention to the house. He kept his attention on the ground. They walked along the side of the mansion, then across a huge backyard, and finally entered the woods that bordered the lawn. Mamu led the way with a flashlight, but it was so dark out there that when Junior turned away from the light, he couldn't see his own hand in front of his face. He quickly turned back to the spray of light cast by Mamu's flashlight. The darkness gave him the creeps. Shoot, this whole place creeped him out. No wonder folks said the place was haunted. They had trudged through the woods for several minutes when they reached a clearing near a huge tree. At the edge of the meadow, a gigantic kudzu-covered hill rose high into the sky. It looked like the side of a mountain. I didn't know they had all this back here, Andre said to Junior. Me neither. Mamu turned on another light. It was one of those big circular lights that stood on a stand. Equipment was spread out on the grass. Junior saw shovels, sledgehammers, a gas lamp, a hammer drill, a yellow canister that had the word gunpowder written on the side, several empty buckets, a heap of blankets piled on what looked like a stretcher, and more stuff he couldn't name. This is our work site, Mamu said. He tossed a shovel to each of them and gave each of them a pair of gloves, too. Mamu walked to the vine-covered hill. He pointed. We will begin digging here, he said. We're going to be digging into this mountain, Andre said. It is not a mountain, Mamu said. His lips curved into a mysterious smile. It is a cave. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook uh, Leave a review on Podchaser Then copy that and paste it into Apple Podcasts Then copy that and paste it into Good Pods um, Five stars for each uh, You can also give a donation at Patreon.com slash Single Simulcast or at um, buymeacoffee.com slash sscast, or on the Good Pods app, uh, you can go to the tip jar. Thank you all so much for listening. I do greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace.
Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.